If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We kind of got started on this a little bit last week when we focused in on chapter 4. But as I said, chapter 4 and 5 go together. It's really the same vision, just broken up primarily to make it easier to read in the churches. And so we come now to chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, written by John the Apostle. And as you remember in chapter 4, saw that there was a door open in heaven, he was invited into heaven. And so he was caught up and he saw one sitting upon the throne and it was what he saw was beautiful he said in verse 3 of chapter 4 he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald so he sees this beautiful vision of heaven and he sees the one on but he doesn't give a description of him he just describes it in terms of the way uh, the beautiful colors of, of a sardius stone and a jasper. Jasper stone is kind of a reddish stone and sardius is multicolored. And he sees this and then he sees those around the throne worshiping God. And they give praise to God. And he sees the four creatures before the Lord crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, all the creatures, uh, every living creature gives glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. So they worship God. So what he sees is this picture of heavenly worship. He sees the 24 elders, which are identified as the redeemed, you know, 24, generally understood probably the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, 12 patriarchs, 12 apostles, although it doesn't identify them as being the patriarchs and the apostles because this is a symbol, and John himself, who was an apostle, is seeing it. And he doesn't say, yes, I was one of those guys. But it's a picture. This is a symbolic book. And they give glory to God. And so we'll end in verse 11 of chapter 4 and then read chapter 5 before we pray. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and, excuse me, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to open our understanding in your word and we pray, please, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, open your word to us that we might hear your voice speaking, that we might understand what you're saying, and that by your Spirit you would make it permanently applicable in our lives, Lord, so that we would become uh, true worshipers of you and join with this heavenly worship that we read of, and that your name would be glorified in us by your work. We'll give you all the glory and all the praise. We commit this ourselves and this time into your gracious hands. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is a beautiful section of Scripture. Just the vision itself is overwhelming if you think about it. You know, one of the difficulties we have sometimes is that we become too familiar with things and we forget that this is awesome. Um, Some of you might be able to remember the first time you ever read this section. Um, I remember the first time I read through the book of Revelation. This part was good. When I got into it a little farther, when there were monsters coming out of the ocean and dragons in the sky, <laughs> the first time I closed the Bible, I said, Lord, I'm not ready for this. About six months later, I read it through, and it was like, all right, okay, it's God's Word, and I thank Him for it. But it was pretty scary the first time through. Um, it's okay to sometimes tremble at the Word of God, but we do need to pray for understanding. And so here we come to chapter 5, a continuation we were going to name this uh, chapter, or my message on it, it would be History Begins in Heaven. What we see going on on the earth, there's a lot of confusion. There's things going on all the time. Jesus told us you'll see wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled by it. So these things have to happen. And so we see in reference to our current events, pretty much every day you pick up a, well, actually nobody picks up a paper anymore, hardly. But you check your news sources on your social media or you, you know, catch something on a uh, television or something and you, or radio and you find out, well, there's a lot of tumult going on in the world, a lot of confusion. 
There's no confusion in heaven. And that's what this chapter is telling us. We see here that um, God is in control. The scroll was written inside and outside and full of words. This chapter has two sections primarily. The first section is verses 1 through 7, where the Lamb receives the scroll from the hand of God the Father. That's certainly who was understood as the one who sits on the throne. And in verses 8 through 14, we see the response of those in heaven and on earth. The celebration of pray and praise that comes from all the creation in every place. And they celebrate the victorious Lamb who alone was found worthy to receive the scroll and to open its seals. He unfolds God's plan. Chapter 5, as we've said, is the continuation of the second half of the vision that began in chapter 4. In chapter 4, God is praised for being the sovereign creator. And in chapter 5, God is praised for being the sovereign redeemer. We see that uh, theme worked out elsewhere in Scripture also. You know, in the Ten Commandments, when they're given originally in Deuteronomy, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 20, um, one of the reasons it says to keep the Sabbath is because God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day. And if you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you see that how that worked out. So the reason for honoring the Lord's Day is because God is the creator. In Deuteronomy 5, right before the children of Israel were getting ready to enter into the promised land, the reason for keeping the Sabbath commandment is given as that remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord redeemed you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, he commanded you to keep the Sabbath. In other words, you're not slaves, so you need to, you, God appoints a day of rest. Slaves aren't given that. You're not slaves. What we see in Exodus, it's creation. In Deuteronomy, it's redemption. Same thing we see here. God is praised as our creator, and he's praised as our redeemer. I mention this so that we can learn how to worship God better. We should be thanking him for our creation. At one point, you didn't exist. <laughs> okay, You weren't anything you did not exist you were nothing less than nothing i suppose if that makes sense and then god in his good pleasure created you in time well he'd already decreed to do that in history and then in his mercy he redeemed you and so it's okay for us to think about what it means being a creature most of the problems men run into are that they forget that they are creatures they start thinking along the lines of the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve, that you'll be like God. You won't have to go to God to find out what's good or bad. You'll know good and evil. Well, they took the bait and they found out what good and evil was. They found out that God was good and they had become evil by their works. Um, so the devil usually has a hook in any bait that he throws. As a matter of fact, he always does. But here we see we're redeemed from that. God has redeemed us. In chapter 5, the Lamb is praised as the one whose blood was shed to redeem his people. So we look at this and we see John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. John in his vision of the throne room of heaven now sees upon the right hand of uh, he who sits upon the throne a scroll. And it's filled with writing inside and outside. There's plenty of information in it, apparently. And it's sealed shut, though, with seven seals. It wasn't open. There are many things written in the scroll about the future of Christ's true church and uh, its sufferings, its testimony, and its ultimate victory and its enemies. 
their blasphemous pride and persecutions, and their ultimate utter destruction. Now we can say what's in the scroll. At this point in chapter 5, it's seen as not open, but if you read through the whole book, you find out what's in the scroll. That's why we can say that. Uh, as the scroll is completely full of the plan and decree of God, we may learn that nothing is going to happen by chance or unexpectedly, uh, or perhaps unexpected to the world, it might be, indeed it, it is, but not to us. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians concerning the second coming of the Lord, he said to them, Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But then he adds, he says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Why? Because they had the word of God. They knew what God had said. They knew the, the history because God had told them in Scripture. So he says, that day is not going to be a surprise for those that fear God. We expect it. We look forward to it. In verses 2 through 5, we have this proclamation. He says, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Someone said, aren't all angels strong? One commentator asked. It's like, yeah, they are. Generally, it's understood this angel's strength was seen in his voice. And the word proclaim there is the word caruso. It means to, as when we preach, we're to do it not in a, you know, I can't think of a good term, mamsy-pamsy, wishy-washy way. We're to proclaim the truth, whether men like it or not. So this angel comes in with a, uh, and that's a messenger, he comes in with a loud voice, proclaims, and he asks a question, this proclamation, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? He gives this announcement to the whole creation, apparently, and because we're told everybody seems to have heard it. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. There was absolutely no one found in the entire creation, only men or angels, worthy to unroll this scroll of apparently of God's plan and purpose. None was found worthy. Pretty sad picture if you think about it. You know, the whole creation in one sense hangs its head in shame because none is worthy. None are worthy, I should say. So I wept much. Actually, none is worthy. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John understood what that scroll was. This is the future. This is God's plan of redemption being worked out in history. It's not going to be opened. It's as if the plan of God is going to come to a quick halt. John is heartbroken over this. He says, I wept much. We can be sure if he wrote it about himself, he wasn't exaggerating. He was very sad. This was a tragedy, the tragedy of humanity, the tragedy of the creation. None was found worthy. But then one of those elders steps forth. We're not told who it was. But he comes and he says to John, do not weep. What a, what a blessed thing. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, literally conquered. So the word nikao, if we like your shoes, Nike. Nike is a Greek word for victory. Nike, Nike, it was at the Battle of Marathon. It's what the runner proclaimed when he came to Athens to let them know that the Athenian forces had prevailed against the Persians and that the, the Athens would be saved. 
And they, you know, he ran 24 miles, and then he, he died at the gate, but his last words were, Nike, Nike, victory, victory. And that's, uh, you know, later the Olympic Games and the marathons, and we use that term for the Battle of Marathon. But Nike means victory, victory. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, we could say has been and is victorious. He's conquered to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There's one found among men, the incarnate Son of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, because he came from the tribe of Judah. The root of David, he's the beginning of it all. He's the one that kept covenant in eternity. He's conquered. There's one worthy to open the seals and to loose its uh, to open the scroll and loose its seals. And so John says, and I looked, and behold, in the midst, so he looks to see, he wants to see this lion. I mentioned the, the lion last week. What awesome creatures they are. He says, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, he doesn't see a lion, and in the, four, uh, and in the midst of the four creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. So he looks and he sees not a lion, but it is a lion. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but symbolically he appears... There's a lamb standing before the throne of God as though it had been slain. We're speaking here of a sacrificial lamb. As though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Generally, seven is a number of completion. You know, in the creation, God created the heavens in seven days. Uh, some of the feasts in Israel, tabernacles and, and um, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, those were seven days. The idea of completion is there. So having seven horns means he has complete power. You know, horns are what animals use to push. It shows their power. David talks about how God exalted his horn, meaning gave him authority and power in his kingdom. And seven eyes, that is, he's able to see all things. And he says, which are the seven spirits of God? Are we understanding there's only one spirit? The sevenfold spirit of God. Remember the seven churches. Uh, we have the seven spirits of God, seven churches. But in each one it says, he that has an ear, let him hear, not what the spirits say, but what the Spirit says. There's one Holy Spirit. But here, symbolically, it's viewed as the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit is in view here. Sent out into all the earth. So this one who stands before the throne as the Lamb, as it says in John's Gospel, he has the fullness of the Spirit, or the Spirit is given to him without measure. Christ, as to his incarnation as a true man, he has the Holy Spirit without limitation. He is the Messiah. The word Messiah from Hebrew, Mashiach, means one who is anointed or the anointed one. How is Jesus anointed? Well, some could say it's the water of baptism, but actually it's his baptism. How was he anointed? The heavens opened. There's another opening of heaven. And the Spirit came down in the form of a dove, landed upon him. And John saw that. And he said, the one who sent me said, on whom you see the Spirit descend and abide, that's the one, that's the Messiah, that's the Lamb of God. And so he has the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That is, he knows all things, he sees all things. Then he came and took, you can also understand that the, the word there, it's lambano in the Greek, it means to take or receive. So he came and took the scroll or received the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That was easy for him to do because Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of God in heaven. So he comes and he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He receives it. There was one worthy. 
Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Again, this is symbolic. And John tells us here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what this symbol means, which are the prayers of the saints. So this picture of the elders having harps by which they praise God. You notice musical instruments are part of worship. Uh, and uh, they have golden bowls full of incense. And he tells us, those are the prayers of the saints. There's a lesson. By the way, saints aren't a special group of Christians. You're a saint. That means one who is sanctified, one who is set apart. When Paul writes to the churches, he addresses them as the saints, which are in various cities, Rome or Philippi, etc., meaning the holy ones of God, because you've been redeemed. You are a saint of God. You belong to him. It's not a special category among Christians. It is Christians, okay? Uh, and when Christians pray, your prayers are like incense before God when they're offered in Christ by true faith. You know, when you think about it when we pray, sometimes our prayers are kind of poor, you know. Sometimes we're not really thinking like we should or we're distracted. It's a good thing for us to develop and understand the position that we stand in God. Our God receives our prayers in Christ as incense. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. He's very pleased with your prayers when you come before Him in worship and in praise and in need. That's why He says to come boldly to the throne of grace. We read about that with the rainbow around the throne, meaning God has a covenant and He's gracious. We're to come and present our prayers, and God receives them as if it was sweet-smelling incense, and when they're offered in Christ, in Christ our mediator. So they worship God, they have their golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song. It's not an unknown song, but it's new and uh, categorically and qualitatively. They sing a new song saying, you are worthy. They're singing to the Lamb, so we see... You know, some say, well, where does the Bible teach the deity of Christ? Pretty much every page of the Bible. Uh, multiple times Christ is referred to as God. The, the phrase, the term even, the Son of God, means he, or the only begotten Son of God, means he is of the same essence with the Father. But here we see Christ being worshipped and praised in heaven. Worship's only to be offered to God. So how can they offer it to the Lamb? Because he is God incarnate. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. As John, who wrote this book of Revelation, said in his gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, as he said in verse 1, and the, the word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John knew who Jesus was. And so he recognizes, and here in heaven, they know who this Lamb is. It is none other than the Son of God, or God the Son, we could say. So they sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have redeemed us. Now note the word us there. That identifies the 24 elders as being symbolically representing the church, the redeemed people of God. And have redeemed us to God by your blood. Note, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. And so, 
they recognized this. The Lamb not only redeemed them, he graciously exalted them to the position of kings and priests in the administration of his royal kingdom. He has made us unto our God kings and priests. Note, unto our God. Not necessarily in the eyes of the world. John said in his uh, first epistle, uh, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we'll be like him, we'll be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. He also said, For this reason the world does not know us, because it knew not him. So the world might not go, Wow, yeah, I could tell by looking at you, you're a king and a priest in Christ's kingdom. Okay? They're going to look at like, basically, to tell you, hey, why don't you be quiet about all this religious stuff? You know, we don't want to hear it. It's like, well, you know, I have a duty to speak up for Christ. But um, we're kings and priests. Now, how do we exercise that rule? Under Christ. And that means according to his word. So when we're going about our daily duties, whatever they may be, in the home or on the job or out in the community, you are representing Christ as an under king to him. And as a priest, meaning you're one who offers prayer and praise to God and ministers his word uh, as you're able to others. Every Christian has that office and they have that authority and under Christ. You know, you're not Jesus's replacement, as some seem to think in our generation. You're not his replacement, you're his representative, you're his servant. And so as we serve him faithfully, we do that duty. You know, you're a king over the, the realm that Christ has placed you. You rule under Christ. That's important to remember. You have authority, but you're under authority, under authority to Christ. Because remember his title, what is he? King of kings and Lord of lords. So you are a king and a priest before God. And not necessarily in the eyes of the world, but where it really does matter is in the eyes of God. Who cares what the world thinks? And so we see in this verses 9 and 10 the fulfillment, you might say, or the uh, inside view or the heavenly view of the Great Commission. Note this, they said, uh, you were slain and have redeemed us to God. Redeemed there means purchased. It's the Greek word, agiazo, it means literally to buy out of the marketplace. Okay, You bought us. We were enslaved to sin. You bought us and freed us. Have redeemed us to God by your blood. So they knew what they know what saved them. Note, they don't say, you've redeemed us to God because we just did everything right. Or, you redeemed us to God because we were smart enough to make a decision for you. They don't say that. Man's abilities and works have nothing to do with redemption. Uh, God is the one who is the Savior. Here we see Christ is the one that saved us. And they say, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. They recognize the cross is where it was settled. The cross is where our salvation was secured. When Jesus said, it is finished. Literally, it stands forever finished. One word, tetelestai in the original, it means it's done. Everything had been accomplished. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. And then note, out of every tribe, this is the Great Commission aspect, out of every tribe, tongue, language group, people, and nation, we have been redeemed. There is no limitation to the extent of the Great Commission. Uh, we're to go forth, we're to preach the gospel. And the saints in heaven, they know this. Uh, this harmonious praise that breaks forth into a previously unheard ode of congratulatory adoration expressed in a new song is, is sung by the saints in heaven. They proclaim the Lamb absolutely worthy to receive the scroll and to open its seals. Keep in mind, these are ones 
No one was found worthy, and all of a sudden one steps forth. God incarnate, but a true man. It's like, wow, there was one. Yeah, but unique in his origins and in his person, and yet a true man. And he came. He is worthy to open its seals. And because of his death and redemption of them by his blood, they praised him. So we see the true nature of real, the term Catholicity, has nothing to do with the Church of Rome. Okay, the, Rome, the Roman Church is anything but Catholic. Catholicity or the Catholic Church means you don't have to be part of our group. If you believe in Jesus, you're part of the Church. <coughs> Rome says, you know, just the very term itself, Roman Catholic, is a contradiction. It's like you say, the American International Church. It's like, well, wait a minute. It's international. How can it be American? And if it's American, how can it be international? I love my country, okay? But when you say the Roman Catholic Church, it's a contradiction. Okay, Catholicity means exactly what it says here in verse 9. You have redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. People everywhere. John in his gospel made reference to this in John chapter 11. When Caiaphas said, yeah, this man Jesus needs to die. Um, John and Caiaphas said, not that our whole nation perish. John says, and this he spake not of himself, that is Caiaphas said this, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Note that. This is the true definition of Catholic when we say it and confess it in the creed and when we speak of it. This is the holy Catholic Church, the redeemed out of every tribe and tongue uh, and kindred or people and nation. Those are God's saved ones. If we want to know well for whom this applies in the book of, of Romans chapter 8, Paul says it really clear. Romans chapter 8 at verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now who's the us there? Okay. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you're wondering, well, uh, who did, for whom did Christ die? He tells you in the next verse, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Obviously, those whom the Father had given to the Son were the objects of Christ's redeeming work. That's the elect. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God could bring a charge against you, but he's the one that declared you righteous. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. No, he doesn't say it's not Christ. Christ has the authority to condemn, and he will on the day of judgment condemn those who died in their sins and never trusted him and never had forgiveness. So, who is he who condemns? It is Christ. And note how he describes it. Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. The only person in the universe that has the authority to condemn you is the one who died for you, rose again for you, is at the Father's right hand for you, and who's also praying for you. He's not going to condemn you. The one that John sees before the throne of God, who is it? It's the Lamb slain. For whom was he slain? You, beloved. He's not going to condemn you. He's your Savior. Then he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he names all the things in the creation. 
It could. And it finally says in verse 38 and 9, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' blood has so saved you that you are saved. And you're not going to get unsaved. If you're trusting in Jesus, that's not something you did. It's something God did. He is the one that saved you. He caused you to be born again through faith in Christ. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when we go through trials and tribulations, I don't mean to be rude or chiding here because I have to take these admonitions also. Stop calling God a liar when you have difficulties. Stop acting like he's forsaken you. He's not. He's taking you through maybe the valley of the shadow of death, but he's taking you through it. So trust him. And don't worry like, well, what if I don't hang on to him? He's got a hold of you. And Jesus said, nobody can pluck you out of his father's hands. Okay? You're safe. It's time you start acting like it. That means when you're tempted, say, hey, I belong to Jesus, man. I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to think that. And if you find, well, I was thinking it, or I did do it. Then you go to the, the lamb that was slain. You say, Lord, please forgive me. Cleanse my heart. Get this garbage out of my life. I want to serve you. I'm a king and a priest before God because of the lamb who loves me, Jesus, the lamb of God, and died for me. So be encouraged, beloved. That's why this chapter is here, because I said the next portion of this book, we're going to see a lot of scary things happen. There's persecution, there's trials, there's saints being murdered, the, the devil turned loose on the earth. All kinds of horrible stuff happens. That's why chapters 4 and 5 are here in, in the book of Revelation, to let you know whatever unfolds, it's coming from this scroll that God wrote, not man. God wrote the scroll. So you need to know who you are. You need to know that you belong to Christ. Again, the picture of Christ as a lamb sacrifice tells us that the present and future, your present and your future, are in the hands of the one who died for us and rose again. Who has the scroll in this vision? Did they hand it to the devil? No. Did they hand it to some inferior being? No. The scroll of God's plan and purpose is in the hand of Christ. Let's learn the lesson here. The saints in heaven understood that. Note in verse 12, they sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And we would probably could add, with not adding to Scripture, but just in comment, and anything else that's good belongs to Him. All belongs to Him. He's the one that's worthy. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whether that refers to infernal spirits or the dead or simply under the earth you know in, in hebrew the ocean or water was under the earth because it's lower and that's that idea but it says and such as are in the sea however you understand that one phrase and all that are in them all rational creation i heard saying actually all creation blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever so you notice to him who sits on and to the Lamb, clearly Jesus is God the Son. You don't worship God and someone else. They're giving glory and praise to, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So what do we learn from this briefly? God is in absolute sovereign control over all things. The book 
the scroll, it was already written. He didn't say they handed him a blank piece of paper and he went around talking to people, figuring out what he should write. The scroll is already written. God has a plan. The future is in the hands of Christ. Your future, the future of the church, no matter how dark things may be, the light's coming. The Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. The picture of Christ as the Lamb's sacrifice tells us that the present and future are in his hands. The one who died for us and rose again. We have victory because it's his victory that we get to participate in. Number four, as I mentioned, the title that would be good for this message or this section, history begins in heaven. It doesn't start with men. It starts with God. We do not live in a chance universe. Everything has a plan and purpose. All things work together for good. It doesn't say they're all good, but God works them. You know, you have a discordant note sometimes. Well, the master uh, composer knows how to weave that into a symphony. The Church of Jesus Christ is not limited by geographical, cultural, linguistic, or racial categories. The Great Commission extends to the whole world. We need to recognize that. Sixthly, we need to know who and what we are. You need to know who you are. Quit letting the world define you. Quit letting other people tell you who you are or what you're not. Recognize who you are. You know, I believe, Ed, I think you tell your children lots of times when they leave the house, tell them, remember who you are. You're a child of the king. Okay? You can also remind them, you're a king and a priest to God. Okay? Very important. We need to understand that. Know who you are. Teach your children who they are. Don't let the world define your children. Oh my, you see the disaster in our culture now. What's going on? Telling children all kinds of lies about who they are and what they are. Totally destructive. You need to know who you are. You need to know who the people of God are. You need to know who Jesus' church is. We are kings and priests to God. And finally, number seven, we must see Christ as the sovereign victor and head over all things to his people, the church, if we would be the true worshipers of God. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus said, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, from a regenerate, forgiven heart, in spirit, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and in truth, that means according to what God says. So we don't just worship God with crazy wild stuff we might think is good. We go to the Bible to find out what God has said. What is acceptable worship in Him? It's praise, worship, and adoration through Christ. So we can learn some things from this, and may God be pleased to keep the, the lessons of this chapter with us so that we can join with that heavenly choir and praise God with all our hearts. Don't hold back in God's praise, beloved. You're a king and you're a priest because of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who's raised again. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to be with us now and bless us. We pray you'd seal your word to our hearts and keep us in your loving grace. For we ask this in Jesus Christ's name.